Praise the Lord. Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bible to the Gospel of John, chapter 15? And as always, we'd like to welcome the new folks. Good to see you all. If you're wondering what we're doing, well, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary Chapel on Sunday morning. And we are currently in a section where Jesus has been comforting his disciples' hearts preparing them for the difficult days that were coming after his death and resurrection and his return to the Father. We're about 12 hours from the cross at this point. Uh, they would be continuing the work that he had begun upon the earth, and although it would be a glorious work, it wouldn't be an easy life. In this passage, we're going to be looking at actually verses 18 to 25, where the Lord lays out for his disciples the harsh reality of what they would face when they did go into all the world and preach the gospel. In fact, in this passage, the Lord gives them three reasons why the world would hate them so vehemently. Let me paraphrase. Number one, the world hates Christians because we are not of the world. Number two, the world hates Christians because it hates Jesus. And number three, the world hates Christians because it does not know God. Last week we looked at the first one. Let's just look at it quickly. The world hates Christians because we are not of the world. Verse 18, Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Last week we pointed out that Christians are no longer a part of the world. Yes, we live in it, but we're no longer a part of it. Peter said that, 1 Peter chapter 2, that we are a, a royal priesthood, a chosen generation, a holy nation, uh, God's own special people. And he's called us out of darkness into his marvelous, marvelous light that we mo might proclaim to this world uh, his glory and, and all that he is. We have been called out of the world morally and spiritually, but we are still living in the world physically. We could say that we are still living in the world, but the world is no longer living in us. Now, that would be ideal. It's not always the case. That's what carnal Christianity is all about, right? Uh, you know, a carnal Christian is one who is saved, but is still filled with the world. The world's still dominating. The world still is in control, kind of like Israel in the wilderness, saved out of Egypt, Egypt the type of the world, but now in this wilderness... Uh, where they're murmuring, complaining, all the things they can't have and can't do, and blah, 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 and they never really entered into the promised land, uh, not those that were 20 years old and above. They died in the wilderness. A lot of Christians are going to die in the wilderness, so to speak, because they never really trust God to live the life of the Spirit through them. It's really sad. And um, God wants us to be filled with the Spirit in the sense that we walk in the Spirit obey his word, be a light in this darkness. We're going to talk about that more in a moment. So ideally, that's what sanctification really is, 2 Corinthians 3.18. The Holy Spirit, once we get saved, is working in us uh, more and more every day, conforming us into the image of Christ, uh, driving out the world, you might say, and filling us more and more with the Holy Spirit, that we might be more and more committed to God, holy, and so on. Now, guys, the word world that Jesus used here in John 15 is the Greek word, Cosmos. And we studied this last week. I'm just going to touch on it. Cosmos is not uh, a word that refers to nature or ecology. 
It's a word that refers to the world system. It's kind of a theological term, uh, expression denoting, and I'm quoting one author, the whole fallen world system of depravity, evil, open hostility and rebellion against God and the people of God. Well, John really put his finger on it in a very succinct way in 1 John 2.19. He said, we are of God, but the world at large, the whole world, lies under the sway of the wicked one. That Greek word means control. Satan is the god of this world. Uh, he is basically in control. Now, don't get me wrong. God is ultimately in control of everything. But God is allowing Satan to do his dirty work. God's got a purpose in it. And eventually that purpose will be fulfilled when Christ comes back to reign. But right now, the world is under the control of the wicked one. He is controlling people. They don't realize, I didn't realize before I got saved. Uh, we were just kind of floating along, uh, Ephesians 2, kind of floating downstream like all the other dead fish, right? Going with the current of the world. And it wasn't until we got saved that we started to go against the world, against the current, current of the world, right? That's how you know you're saved. You're not just floating downstream like all the rest of the dead fish. It takes a live, healthy fish to float against the current or to swim against the current. Um, but here, Jesus said, look, in verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. The world would love you. The bottom line is that those people who belong to this fallen world system will always love those who are like them. Misery loves company, okay? And the world will always love those who are like the world. Uh, like the world in the way they think and talk and behave. All of these things that as long as you act and talk and think like the crowd, the crowd's going to love you. You get saved, you find out how many of your friends are going to bolt. Because you don't talk like them anymore, think like them, and you don't act like them. Because you're a child of God. And um, that's why... The world persecutes, of, persecutes Christians because darkness hates the light. Now, Jesus said in John chapter 3, he said that light has come into the world, Jesus. But men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And that's the whole idea. Now, not everybody um, hates the light. I mean, we all did at one time, but then God began to work in us. We were all of the darkness at one point, we were all unsaved. But then the Lord began to call us. He began to convict us. He began to do that work within us that eventually led us to receive Christ. And once we did, we became a new creation. Old things passed away. All things became new. And the things that we used to love to do, party, hang out, take drugs, do other things I'm not going to mention, we don't want to do those things anymore. And back then, the things that we never would have thought of doing, going to church and prayer meetings and reading the Bible and talking about Jesus and singing worship songs, we love to do now. See, this is the problem with the world. They think, and, and I've heard unbelievers say that, I'm, not, I'm never going to be a Christian. Well, why not? You guys can't have any fun. I can party. I can do this. I can do that. You can't do anything. That's fun. Look, I'm having a ball. They don't realize that. I don't want to do those things. I'm a new creation. God's given me a new heart, new attitudes, right? I mean, the idea that, you know, unbelievers think, you know, I'm really kind of just restraining myself. I, oh, I wish I can go to that party. Oh, man, I wish I could have a drink. Like, I'm really fighting that urge, right? Look, I don't have to go to church. I get to go to church. 
I don't have to read the Bible. I get to read the Bible, right? I don't have to fellowship with God's people. I get to hang out with God's people. It's a whole new life, right? A whole new life. But here's the thing. Once you get saved and are now a child of God, well, there's a lot of folks that are still in the world, folks that are close to us, family, friends, co-workers. And here's the, the dynamic that comes about. Proverbs 29, 27. An unjust man is an abomination to the righteous, and he who is upright in the way is an abomination to the wicked. So there you have the battle between light and darkness, right? The world at large is an abomination to us. We love the people. We want to see them saved. But we certainly don't want to do what they're doing anymore. I mean, we don't want to do what they're, what they're doing. We've been delivered from that. And they think we're nuts. They think we're strange. Uh, but that's okay. But we are light and darkness, our budding heads now. So look, you can go online, and we spent a lot more time last week talking about that first point. Number one, the world hates Christians because we are not of the world. But number two, the world hates Christians because it hates Jesus. Look at verse 18 again. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Verse 20, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they have kept my word, they will keep yours also. Verse 25, but this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. Look, over the years, I have talked to numerous Christians who were very, very hurt, upset, because people that they used to hang out with now didn't want to be around them anymore. In fact, kind of hated them. Okay, old friends and things, right? Or just people in general, maybe people they work with. And uh, they, they, they felt very bad about that and wanted to know, well, why? Why? And I, over the years, I've tried to tell Christians who are being persecuted for their faith that when unbelievers mistreat them or even hate them, it, it isn't really a hatred for them personally per se. They hate us because we love and represent Jesus. You have to get that in your head, okay? In that regard, it is the devil in them hating and persecuting the Lord in us. And if you think that's a harsh way of putting it, you should check out 1 John 3 again. Because John basically said that. He said, look, this is how we know the children of the devil from the children of God. Children of God love to practice righteousness. Children of the devil, not so much. And the children of the devil persecute the people of God. Because they're darkness and we're light. And so they're being controlled by the devil. I didn't know I was being controlled by the devil before I got saved. All my life I was being controlled by the devil, and I didn't realize it. Stuff I was watching and listening to and, and so on. It was programming my mind. It was brainwashing me to think a certain way. We've talked about this. Because as a man thinks in his heart, what? So is he. The devil can get control of your thinking. He can get control of your life. And that's really what he's up to. That's why when we get saved, the Bible says right up front, and I'll quote, what Paul said in Romans 12, verse 2, don't be conformed to this world's way of thinking any longer, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Because you got to get unbrainwashed. The, devil's has, the devil has taken captive our thoughts and got us to think certain ways. But now you have to go to the Word of God, feed your mind on God's Word, 
and it will cleanse your thoughts. It will, it will reprogram you the way God originally designed man to be, and woman, of course. But it's interesting how this all works. And uh, just you have to realize the devil, the prince of darkness, hates Jesus, the Lord of light. And so he works in the hearts of those he controls to hate those who represent Jesus in this world, those who are now called light in the Lord. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. Now let's just pick it up in verse 8 because Paul's talking about this very thing. Ephesians 5 verse 8, Paul said, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Therefore, walk as children of light. Isn't that interesting? It's not automatic, is it? You can be a carnal Christian. And Paul is saying, look, once you're saved, you are now children of light. You're no longer of the darkness. Now walk as children of light. Honor God with your lives, right? Verse 9, he talks about what that looks like. And he uses the expression, the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. He could have gone on. He's capsulating what the fruit of the Spirit is. It's a changed life. It's, it's, a, it's a, 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 a brand new life is the idea, right? That's how we walk in the light. Verse 10, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And listen, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Now, some Christians read that and they take from that an admonition from God to get obnoxious, to get in unbelievers' faces. I don't see it that way. You know how you expose the unfruitful works of darkness primarily? Just live a Christ-like life. Let your light shine. And unbelievers are going to do one of two things. They're going to run from you or be drawn to you. But either way, something's going to happen. And the idea is that we don't have to be obnoxious in our faith. We're called not to be, obviously. We're to go out and love and not argue with unbelievers and in humility correct them because they've been taken captive by the devil to do his will and, and, and really we want to see them set free. But um, you, you, you expose the darkness by living a Christ-like life and letting your life shine. Look, unbelievers love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And so Jesus warned us they will persecute the light in an attempt to extinguish it. Remember, Jesus was the original light of the world, right? I'll just read these to you. You can write down the references. Remember how John started his gospel? In chapter 1, he said in verses 4 and 5, In him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Some translations translate it, and the light couldn't, uh, and the darkness couldn't extinguish the light. Jesus invaded, as the light of God, invaded a world of darkness, a world controlled by the devil. Now, did Satan want Jesus to come to this world? No, he tried to stop that. Come back Wednesday night in our Revelation study, we'll talk about how. Satan tried his best to stop Jesus from being born. He didn't want the light in the world. But Jesus came anyways, and the devil couldn't do a thing about it. And then Jesus said in John 8, 12, he said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And again, in chapter 9, verse 5 of John's gospel, he said, 
as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world, implying he wasn't going to be in the world physically indefinitely. He had a limited amount of time he was going to be physically in this world. And that's why at one point in his public ministry, after having proclaimed himself to be the light of the world numerous times, Jesus at one point turned to his disciples one day and said, and I'm reading out of Matthew 5, verses 14 to 16, he said to his disciples, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Listen, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. First of all, guys, this implies that the world is in a state of moral and spiritual darkness, and we as the followers of Jesus alone are its only light source. One author had this to say on the subject. He said, and I quote, uh, It's interesting how the world is always talking about enlightenment ever since the Renaissance of the 15th and 16th centuries, which ended the Dark Ages. It was regarded as an age of enlightenment where mankind began to take a new interest in knowledge and learning. Regarded by many as the great turning point in the history of civilization, as mankind began to look to knowledge, education, and science for the answers to man's problems, end quote. Well, guys, sadly, man is still looking to knowledge, education, and science to save us from our problems. Have those things done that? Look, as we stand here this morning, at this point in human history, mankind, listen, has more knowledge in medicine, science, and technology than was known in all the previous centuries in the history of the world combined. Has it helped us? No, in many ways, it has hurt us. All this accumulated knowledge has not solved man's problems, but in many ways has added to them. What do I mean? Well, the sad reality is that the more knowledge has increased, instead of solving our problems, it has only exacerbated man's, mankind's problems by allowing man to invent more and more sophisticated weapons, more powerful weapons uh, that have a greater destructive capability than anything uh, that was ever invented until this last century or so. And now we have the capacity to annihilate the entire population of the world. Our technology, our accumulated knowledge has brought mankind to the brink of extinction. And I know that many people would defend modern science and technology, and I'm not putting it down. I'm just, I'm just making a point, all right? I'm thankful for you know, modern technology and medicine and a lot of things that uh, have uh, enriched our lives. The point I'm making is, though, that people want to make modern technology, science, medicine, all this knowledge into a god that is worshipped. And yes, there have been many positives from these things, but there's also been some negatives as well. I was telling First Service that, uh, and I could be wrong, I thought I read this, the only disease ever eradicated from the face of the earth was smallpox. It was a very deadly disease, and science, medicine uh, figured out a cure, and they literally eradicated smallpox from the face of the earth. Good thing, right? So what did man do? He reproduced it in the laboratory and made it into a bioweapon. See, anything man does that 
does have some positive effects, he can always find a way to turn it around into something very negative. This is what we're saying. And why is that? Well, because man's word rightly, excuse me, God's word rightly says that we're in darkness. And the greatest enlightenment the human race needs isn't scientific, it's spiritual. It's spiritual. Fallen man needs spiritual light that comes from God. Now, spiritual light, biblically speaking, is true. The truth of God revealed to man. Keep that in mind. We'll get this, revisit that idea next week. Let me say it again. Spiritual light is truth. The truth of God, which man could only know if it, if it was God, unless God revealed it to us. But God's truth, excuse me, God's word is truth. And therefore, biblically speaking, it's light. John 17, verse 17, Jesus said on the night before his crucifixion, he prayed to his father, Father, sanctify them, my disciples, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And the psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word is truth and it is light. So spiritual light is again the revelation of God's truth found in his word and declared by his son. Jesus said on numerous occasions, I came into the world to bear witness of the truth. Remember he said that to Pilate? And Pilate said, what is truth? Walked away, right? Jesus Christ came into a world of darkness to be a light, to, to light people's way back to God by giving them God's truth in a world filled with Satan's lies. And Jesus said the lies would ramp up more and more the closer we got to Jesus' return. So we're seeing it as we live today. But um, look, since God is the source of all spiritual light, all spiritual truth, the only way we, the only way we can be spiritual lights in this world is, listen, to surrender our lives to Jesus, where the light of the world, Jesus Christ, comes to live in our hearts. Guys, it's only then that we can become the light of the world as Jesus promised us in Matthew 5.13. We have no light within us. The only light we have within us is the light that God puts there we accept Christ and the Spirit of God moves in. That is the only way we can be uh, a beacon of light. In and of ourselves, we have no light. Fallen man is, has no goodness. He has nothing that God can look at as a redeemable quality. He's completely lost. He's completely separated from God, right? There's nothing. Paul says, in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. And the only good in me is what God put in me when I accepted Christ. And I became a light because Jesus is the light of the world. Now, as Jesus came to bear truth of the light, excuse me, to speak of the light, as Jesus came to bear witness to the light, God's truth to a world of darkness and lies, look, once we become the light of the world, now we have to take up the mantle of Jesus' ministry and go into all the world and declare the truth of God, to be a light, not just with our words, but with our lives. This is so important, and I know it's basic, but a, a lot of Christians are living as if they've forgotten this whole thing. Depending on what group you listen to and what radio show you listen to, pastors and preachers are out there telling you that God saved you for all kinds of reasons. Not many of them are godly, to make you wealthy and healthy and this and that. No, God saved you to be a light. God saved us to go into the world and represent Jesus. Because he's the only one that can save sinners. 
I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. He said, we're his followers. That has to be our heart as well. But we have to declare the truth. And we, we declare it, first of all, by just living as lights. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 2? He told the church at Philippi, and of course all of us, he says, do all things without complaining and disputing. Don't, don't argue among yourselves. Don't whine and carry on like little children. Verse 15, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without, without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, listen, among whom you shine forth as lights in the world. That's our responsibility. That is ministry in a nutshell. Now remember, darkness hates the light because its deeds are evil and will always try to extinguish the light through whatever means possible. Look, it's no use trying to figure out why your unsaved friends and family members don't like you or how, why some of them hate you. You know, I, I get, I've got Christians over the year, years come to me and, and they're really broken up you know, that their good friend no longer wants to be around them or family doesn't want to talk to them, right? And that's it's not easy to deal with. And they'll come to me. They're beating themselves up. They're torturing themselves, trying to figure out, what did I do to them? Pastor, tell me. What, what did I do to them that they don't like me anymore? Would you receive Jesus into your heart? Well, yeah, that's what you did. <laughs> that's it in a nutshell, all right? Don't torture yourself trying to figure out why unbelievers don't like you. Don't try to rationalize it. Jesus already gave us the answer. It's right here in John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know this. It hated me before it hated you. As it is written, they hated me without a cause. There's no rhyme or reason. There's no rationale. People hate us as Christians simply because we love Jesus and belong to him and we're not of the world any longer. They hate us without a cause. Let me just broad, broaden this out a little bit because I, I, I feel like I need to say something because there's a lot of churchgoers. You know, we're living in the last days. And Jesus said that the closer we got to his return, the more the devil would infiltrate churches and sow the tares. Tares are unbelievers, but they're church-going unbelievers. Many of them really believe they're Christians, probably most of them. Some, I'm convinced, are in churches to network. I've had guys tell me that. Uh, I gotta leave your church. It's not big enough. I want to go over to this church. It's a big. I want to network. You know, I sell my product. Well, good luck to you. God bless you. We don't want you here anyways. If, that, if that's all it's about, okay. If this is why you're here. Then you know, good. Um, but and then of course, believe it or not, there are there are there are people that are serving the devil, who infiltrate churches. We have been infiltrated a few times over the years. By people looking back, I really believe we're satanic plants. And, and, and I, I have a story I don't have time to get into. There are groups of Satanists. All right. Somebody said, go for it. <laughs> One of our pastors was, he was in town speaking somewhere. He's a pretty well-known speaker. He was in town, going to speak Saturday night at some church or a big conference. Beautiful Saturday morning. He goes for a job. And he's jogging by a park and sees a group of guys huddled around each other. They're heads bowed. They're praying. It's obvious. So he runs up to the group and he wants to join them. This is great, right? I'm going to join these guys and have some prayer time with some brothers. As he gets closer to the group, he begins to hear what they're saying. They had a list 
that they were reading off of. It had all the names of the pastors in, the, in town by name, their wives written by name, all their children by name. And they were praying to Satan that he would cause pastors to fall through adultery or through this or that, families to be destroyed, marriages to be wrecked. You don't think that these people then go out into these churches and try to make that happen? I've seen it here. Folks, we're in a war, and we better wise up because the devil is very active in bringing the church down and sowing discord and murmuring and complaining to, to Christians so that hopefully they jump on board and all of a sudden the church is full of murmuring and complaining and so on to destroy the, the unity and the effectiveness of that church for Christ. But there's a lot of Christians, people I should say, I don't know, if I don't know their hearts. There's a lot of people who go to liberal churches that think they're Christians, but their church doesn't believe any of the basic tenets of the Christian faith. They don't believe Jesus was son of God, died on the cross, rose from the dead, Mary was, he was virgin. They don't believe any of that, yet they call themselves Christians. There are others who come to evangelical churches like ours, and um, they hear the word taught. They go out that door, and they don't plan on applying any of it to their lives, but they've come to church. It's all God wants. I go to church, God will leave me alone now. Now I can make money and I can be blessed because I went. I did my duty. That's how they think. They think they're nothing but religious unbelievers that unbeknownst to them really hate Jesus, although they profess to love him. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now, we don't all keep his commandments perfectly. I understand that. But our heart, hearts as evangelical Christians is to live according to God's word. We want to honor the Lord. We don't want to do the things we used to do, right? There are folks that profess to know God, but as Paul said to a young pastor named Titus, Titus 1 verse 16, they profess to know God, but by the way they live their lives, it proves they're not children of God. I'm talking about overt sin. I'm talk, not talking about a Christian who's weak and stumbles and falls and please God help me, I want to be better, I don't want to do this. No, we're not talking about that person. We're talking about somebody who's playing a game. There are tares among the wheat, right? Look, there are those who come to church that don't walk in the light in the sense that they don't embrace the true gospel. As a Roman Catholic, I went to Catholic church. I grew up in the church. I was married in the church. I went to Catholic grade school, did the Stations of the Cross every day at lunchtime. And in my mind, I was going to heaven because my church taught me that to get to heaven, you do these things, these works. You light the candles and you play the rosaries and you do the Stations of the Cross and you observe the holy days and feast days and you get baptized and confirmed and all these things were necessary to earn heaven. And I was zealous for these things. But as Paul said to the Romans about the Jews who were also very wrapped up in their religion, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and running around seeking, seeking to establish their own system of righteousness have not submitted themselves to God's righteousness. That's hating Jesus. When you reject the only, he's on the way, the truth, and the life. Oh, I don't believe that. 
I believe it's you plus praying the rosary and doing this and that. You're hating Jesus because you're, you're denying his completed work. It's like Cain. God told Cain and Abel, Genesis, right? You want to approach me? Here's the offerings you have to bring. Abel listened. Abel brought an offering that, that honored God, was consistent with God, said God accepted him. Cain decided, well, no, I don't, want to, I don't feel like bringing that. I'm going to bring what I want. And God should accept it. He should be happy with coming at all. He brings his offering. God rejected it. Cain went and pouted. God said, what are you pouting for? If you do what's right, in other words, Cain, if you listen to me, I'll accept you. But Cain couldn't handle it until he killed his brother because his brother was righteous and he was wicked. Cain practiced self-styled religion. A lot of folks are practicing self-styled religion. As we said last week, it's kind of a sizzler spirituality. You ever been at the, at the, at the, 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 the salad bar sizzler? It's pretty good, isn't it? People bring that over into their spiritual lives. Oh, a little this, a little that. They like to pick and choose. They like to develop their own system of righteousness. And God says, I'm not going to accept that. Oh, but I'm sincere. It doesn't matter. God doesn't count sincerity for righteousness. He counts faith in the truth for righteousness, right? Look, we're talking about the world hating us, persecuting us. It's a reality, right? We have to understand that. And so I want to give you just a couple of principles, and we'll close, that, that go along with this, all right? And... Um, when you go out there to serve the Lord in the world, you're, these two principles, don't ever forget them. The first one we just spent 20 minutes on, at least. Uh, the number one, I've got to repeat it because it's you know first on the list. Unbelievers will be antagonistic toward you. Now, go into ministry with that idea. Maybe you've already figured that out. Okay, it's a given, though. Unbelievers will be antagonistic toward you when you seek to serve the Lord. Because they are made, excuse me, because they are under the control of the devil who is filling them with hatred for you. But listen, they are not your enemy. Please get that down. The world is going to persecute us, but we are not, they are not our enemy. Paul the Apostle said, We don't fight against flesh and blood. People are not our enemies. Our wars with principalities and powers, the forces of wickedness in the heavenly realm. Uh, we are fighting a spiritual war, and the devil is pushing the buttons of unbelievers and using them against us, but they're not our enemy. We were once there, right? Thank God I had a neighbor that prayed for me. I didn't know that. It wasn't until years later that I was a Christian and had a, a little dinner for a Christian ministry. There she was sitting on the table next to us. Started talking to her. She prayed for And the families in my neighborhood. We're not, we're not altar boys. And so, but she prayed for us. And I'm confident that God used her prayers to convert us. Um, if she had considered us an enemy, she probably wouldn't have prayed for us. But again, Tim, Paul told Timothy, don't argue with unbelievers. In humility, share the gospel. Correct them if need be. Be patient. Be kind. Be loving. Because again, they have been taken captive by the devil to do his will. And we want to see God set them free with the only thing that can set them free. They're in a prison of lies and we have the truth, the gospel, which alone can set them free. 
Once again, guys, unbelievers, the world, will be antagonistic toward you. So listen, either you're going to accept that going in and you're going to love them with God's love, pray for them, try to reach them for Christ, or you're going to declare war on them. Have you known Christians like this or professing Christians, right? They get upset because the world is, is against them and is, is always at war with them. So they, they declare war on the world. What do you mean? I'm thinking this is maybe an extreme example of what I'm talking about. It takes lesser forms, but the Westboro Baptist Church. This is a church that goes into crowded areas carrying signs that say God hates fags. Thank God for dead soldiers. Because they believe when soldiers, our soldiers die in the battlefield, God's judging America for our wickedness. So thank God for dead soldiers. God's judging America. That's grotesque. That's disgusting. But it takes lesser forms. God doesn't want us to declare war on the world. He wants us to love the world. But here's the, here's the other side of that. You have some Christians that want to love the world so much that they think that it's their job in, in ministry to win the world over to be their friends. It's just human nature, isn't it? To want people to like us, even when it comes to unbelievers. And because of it, many Christians believe that they can be a friend of Jesus while at the same time be a friend of the world also. They believe that we reach the world by becoming friends with the world. And that has given rise to different churches. One I heard about, but I've heard of others. This one church actually uh, wanted to have church in a bar. Well, Sunday morning, the bar wasn't open. But they wanted to have church in the bar to be close to the community and then to hold over some weeks into the afternoon and kind of be with the people of the community and do something that would make the people of the community think, hey, we're just like you, but we're, we love Jesus. And so it gave rise to something called beers and hymns. Where they get around, the guys in the church get around this bar, they're knocking back some brews and singing hymns to Jesus. Because in their mind, you can't reach the world unless you become like the world or a friend of the world. Look, the people of this world are not your enemies. That's true. But neither are they your friends either. And that's not always an easy line to walk. Again, one of the traps that Christians often fall into is trying to make friends with the world. And I'm talking about unbelieving friends and neighbors, co-workers, um, in an effort to reach them for Jesus, seeking to win them over by making them think, you're still the same person you've always been, right? I mean, come on, you've known me for years. I'm the same guy. I just love Jesus now. And to prove that they're still one of the guys, still the same person they've always been to all the people they come in contact with, friends, family, co-workers. Christians will sometimes lower their standards and go places with these unbelievers. They shouldn't go. R-rated movies, secular parties, at work, you know, they'll stand around the water cooler and, you know, maybe not wholeheartedly participate in the office gossip, but they're there, you know, laughing at maybe the dirty jokes. This is all in an attempt to become like the world to reach the world. Hey, I'm just I'm the same guy I've always been. I just love Jesus now. 
I've even heard of Christians over the years that in an effort to prove to their co-workers they're still one of the guys, they're still one of the gals, they're, they're, the group of their co-workers goes out every Friday to a bar to have a drink. Come on with us. Come on. You're, you're one of us. And so they go out to the bar. And they've said to me, well, I only had one drink. Okay. How many drinks does it take in a bar to destroy your witness? You know? I mean, the goal of Christianity isn't to win friends, it's to win souls. And again, you're not going to do that by becoming like the world and behaving like the world to reach the world. Because the world's going to think you're just a hypocrite. They're hoping you have that beer. They're hoping that you come out and have a beer. I don't give us one beer. I don't give us half a beer. Now they got the ammo to say, hey, so-and-so went out. The Christian went out with us to the bar. He's a hypocrite. See, I told you, they're all hypocrites. Guys, trying to be friends with the world is not only misguided, it's forbidden by God as ungodly. James chapter 4, verse 4. James said, and I love the way he always tried not to offend anybody, adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Look, love the people of this fallen world enough to try to reach them for Jesus, but do it because you're his friend, not because you're trying to be their friend. So unbelievers are going to be antagonistic toward you. And very briefly, I'll end with this second point. Unbelievers are notoriously fickle and prone to turn on you. When you serve the Lord by helping people, and it's not, not just unbelievers, even some Christians I've seen this happen to, but when you serve the Lord by helping people, if they turn on you, and many will, for whatever reason, don't take it personally. It's hard, but don't do it. If you do take it personally, it often signals that you were helping them in part to cause them to like you. And if that's the case, you were being a man-pleaser and not a true servant of Jesus Christ. In other words, you were not being a God-pleaser. Remember what Paul said in Galatians 1, verse 10, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. You have to serve the Lord, guys, simply because you love Jesus. That's, that's got to be the, the sole motivation for serving the Lord, because you love Jesus. And everything you do in ministry, everything, is done for him, which is the cardinal rule of ministry. So if people turn against you, it doesn't matter. I'm not saying it doesn't hurt. We're not robots. But if people turn against you, you haven't lost anything because you were doing it for Jesus. The one who said, you can't give a cup of cold water to one of my little ones in my name without receiving your reward. When I try to serve people, and I know my heart, I, I just want to help people. If they turn on me, and many have, I'd say, Lord, you know my heart. I, di I, I, I did what I did for them out of a, out of a, a pure heart. I, ju I just wanted to help them. But Lord, ultimately, I was doing it for you. And that's how I get through ministry. When people turn against me or my wife, we just give it to the Lord. No, it's not easy. Again, we're not robots. It hurts. But I do it for Jesus. I do it for Jesus. 
look, and we're done. If you make ministry about you, and I've seen people do this. Why do you want to get a ministry? I, why does your wife want to be in ministry? Come up and say, you know, my wife really wants to be in, in, in Sunday school ministry. Why? Because it would really help her self-esteem. Well, that's the wrong reason for any of us to be in ministry. It's not about us. But if you make ministry about you, recognition, self-esteem, personal glory, then when people don't appreciate you, don't like you, or if they come against you and persecute you, if you're not doing it for Jesus, you're going to be crushed. You're going to be crushed. You're going to become resentful, disillusioned, and quit ministry altogether. I've seen it happen numerous times in my 40 years in ministry. But if you do it for Jesus, when they turn it, and we're talking about the world hating us. It's not always the world. Sometimes the church can be like, well, there's a lot of worldly people in the church, so you take it and run with it. But again, if we do ministry for Jesus, then when people turn against us, well, it won't be a ministry-ending event because Jesus was always the focus. All right? So, three points. First of all, the world hates Christians because we are not of the world. Number two, the world hates Christians because it hates Jesus. We'll save this one for next week. The world hates Christians because it does not know God. Even though God has done everything in his power that unbelievers would come to know him. Hang on to that thought. We'll study it next time. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have opened our eyes, that you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. We thank you that we are no longer the people we once were. We are new creations, and old things have passed away. Everything has become new. We thank you for that, Lord. And now we ask for grace, Lord, to look at unbelievers, those who are still in the darkness, and to love them and to have compassion on them. Um, that we would reach out our hand to them in love to try to pull them out of the quicksand into a new life in Christ. So, Lord, we just thank you. We ask that you would continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.